0: Dave's Psych Lectures part of the Thunderbird 6 podcasting network When well, i got a fire when you take a guess just one more drink i think i'm going to sing, when well, i got a Oh yeah, yeah. so with uh, developmental so you know psychology this is another area of psychology that uh, my experience with it is raising children uh, I don't this is not my area Um, I've not had a developmental class. I had no interest in ever taking a developmental class. It struck me as boring. It probably would have been useful, and it's probably actually a useful thing for people to take, because most people ended up having kids. But it just never struck me as anything interesting. Uh, So, I want those of you that take developmental now, because I know it's being taught now, or I've taken it before, I think it's almost every year. Uh, feel free to pipe in and explain to me when I've got things backwards. Because uh, don't be surprised. I mean, this is not my area. Uh, that being said, um, you hear people say well, like, one of my least favorite terms is "you know it takes a village." It takes a village to raise a child. I know who that sarcastic guy is. That guy is not doing there, This is the notion that and a not completely incorrect notion, it's just that it sounds so namby pandy, I guess, which what am I, from the 40s? Uh, that's right, it's pandy. Um it's the idea that it's not just parents that affect kids' behavior that clearly is true, we've all been kids and we know that you're probably more influenced by the cool kids in your class than you are by your mom and dad in a lot of respect, in fact there's data um, but it's, it's broader than that it's the idea that we all kind of raise children communally this has been tried and in fact still is tried by the way the idea of communal child rearing this is done on kibbutzes uh, in Israel kibbutzes are um, communes in essence where people all live together the kids are raised communally oftentimes separate from the parents now this isn't it's not like a cult and the kids are taken away and it's just done voluntarily. I uh, tend to be doing farm work. And frankly, you know, you get up in the morning and you work growing, say, you know, uh, oranges, which is one of the things that's grown on these kibbutz in uh, Israel. Um, you're working on a farm all day. You're not going to have time for kids anyway. So there's other people that take care of the kids. And you see the kids on, on, on weekends and stuff like that. Like, and you hang out all day. And It's, it's not like, it's like, you know, like boarding school, things like that, right? So the interesting thing there is that in fact parents spend less time with their kids there in those kind of situations than uh, in a lot of places. That said uh, nowadays, you know, if you've got little kids and you're in school or you've got a job, you don't see much of your kids either because your your kids are daycare. It's interesting that in those situations where we have uh, rural uh, communal child rearing, that you would think that well, what effect did this have? One of the interesting effects it's had is that while the kibbutz idea in Israel, by the way, it's, it's a, it's a social-slash-political movement, okay? So it's the idea, and, and people within kibbutzes are encouraged to stay there and to marry within them. And uh, there have been a grand total of a, around 20 marriages ever between kids that are from the same kibbutz. Because they see each other as brothers and sisters, and it's the incest taboo kick when you are around someone who's roughly the same age as you all the time, you start to see them as your brother and sister, right? Or, and or sister, I should say. So, that's kind of cool because that tells us that the incest taboo, which makes a great deal of biological sense, right? Because you know what, because think about it, I know this is gross, but just think about this for a second. Your opposite sex sibling you know them really well. You know them better than you know anybody else in the world, probably. When you're, when you're 14, 15 years old. You know them better than anybody else in the world. You know the good and the bad. Why don't you mate with them? Ugh. Well, biologically, it makes sense to not them, be, right? Because you end up with two copies of recessive genes you get more genetic defects okay so you're too closely related how the hell does that work well the incest taboo must work based on proximity we know that because of the kibbutz examples we also know that because people that have adopted brothers and sisters even if they're clearly different like it's a black family with a white kid or a white family with a black kid you still go no man that's my brother that's creepy and it's like, no, it's clearly not your biological brother. Everything's fine. No, it's wrong. I'm not doing it. It's weird. It's gross. It's not just like it's wrong. It's more like this. I feel like I'm going to puke when you say things like that. Like, it's disgusting. cross cultural as well, by the way. So, so communal child-rearing does have an interesting thing. It's that we see everybody we've been around for a long time as family. Now, this makes a lot of sense because actually it takes a village of relatives to raise a child. We know back in the EEA that we lived in family groups probably between about 30 and 50, and everyone in that group was more or less related to us. So if you spend a lot of time around somebody when you're little and you're a little bit older, you're going to start viewing them as as family, and that makes a lot of sense for us to be set up that way. family? Well family is your kid. Right? It's interesting because there are groups of family of people that stay together after sexual maturity. This doesn't happen in most other species. Most other species the young hit reproductive age, they're just kicked out Go find your own family now. Go start your own. Mooch. You're the forty percent percent of people I don't want around me. Nothing? Nobody? I'll well, stop making U.S. election references well next week. Next week. Okay. That said, it's not completely ridiculous enough. It, it, most, other, most of the time other species, you get to the point of, of, of uh, sexual maturity leak. But it doesn't always happen. In, in birds, there is a, a common enough phenomenon called helpers at the nest. And a helper at the nest is typically a sexually mature but still young uh, offspring. So it could be, you know, like birds mature after a year typically, one season. But they're probably not going to have a whole lot of success maybe because they're too young, right? Not a lot of experience yet. So it actually makes a lot of sense for them to help raise the next generation, right? So the next set of their brothers and sisters. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it makes sense then for these young to be sexually mature, but not that mature yet, young to help raise the kids. Now, we see this a lot in people, Right, we see 12, 13, 14-year-old brothers and sisters looking after their little brothers and sisters from mom and dad. Um, just general helping out once a new baby shows up, that kind of thing. So that's pretty common in people. There's also the notion of reciprocal altruism. That families, so we can help with the next model in humans. We've also got the reciprocal altruism idea here. Right? And this is the notion that I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Now, for, to do a simple is that we both have to have good memories. We have to recognize each other. So we have to recognize each other because they're going to say, okay, I did this favor for you at this time. Now you have to do this favor for me uh, to pay you back at some point. Right? So we have to be able to recognize each other. And we have to recognize the value of the thing, usually some behavior, that we've given to each other. Right? Make sense? So we got the reciprocal altruism angle as well. So not only is it... And again, think about an extended family in the EEA, or think about even a lot of families that are really pre-World War II in a lot of respects. You didn't move away from where your family lived. One of the phenomena that, we, that I saw when I lived in Newfoundland was people would just build another house on the same land and that's where their other kid would live. I found it weird, but that's most of Newfoundland was weird, actually. Um, a lot of weird stuff. But you'd see like a lot, and there'd be the big house, and then there'd be another house here, and this is where this generation lived, and another house this generation lived over here. Fair enough, and that was common enough All over the world. You know what they say, you land in Newfoundland, please set your watches back 50 years. So, Newfoundland joke there. So, the thing is, much more common years ago, that you had much more distant relatives nearby, like in the EEA, where you lose your whole tribe, lose your relatives. So, if I'm going to be nice to my second cousin, I'm not getting much benefit out of that. But I get very little out of giving my second cousin something somebody I share one-sixteenth of my genes with. get hardly anything out of that. But you know what? Maybe my second cousin's going to be nice to me sometime. So we pay each other back, reciprocal altruists. So there's that, too. There's that, too. Plus, there's also the idea well, what about in-laws, right? Well, again, they aren't really related to you, except for what's called assortative mating, where your partners are a little more related than random chance sexual partners, but it's not. But again, that's going to be so small; it doesn't matter. But you know, helping out an in-law, helping out somebody, no problem. You know, I'd, I'd certainly help out my nieces and nephews that I'm not not blood related to. No problem. Right? I mean, I sent one of my nieces a, a, a reprint of an article I wrote once. <laughs> I actually did because she, she wanted it. She's a biologist. That's not really that. It wasn't that much work. So I sent her a link. So families are kind of interesting because we do see them in other species, but they tend to stay together much longer in humans than they do in non-humans. Okay, now parent-offspring conflict is pretty cool because this is something that was originally thought up. Uh, that Robert Travers was one of the first people to do so. He's a biologist, I think. He's at Harvard, and but his work was mostly on birds, but he's one of the founders of sort of evolutionary psychology, even though he's a biologist. Um, parents give investment in young. Right, and that investment can be physiological, so it could, you know, milk, but it could also be behavioral. Right, it can be like just bringing food. It can be hanging around at home and making sure saber-toothed tigers don't attack the child, which is much easier ever since the extinction of the saber-toothed tiger. So the, the kid wants the in, that, that to go on forever. In their eyes, it just makes sense. It's like I'm just going to lie back here and just freeload. Right, I'm just going to get. This is great. I'm getting my laundry done. My meals are free. I'd like this to go on for a long time. Now, the parents, on the other hand, at some point, their idea is, you know, this one's going to live now. We could have more. We could pass on more genes. So we've helped this one along enough we don't have to keep investing in the kid. We can now invest in more kids. Do You understand the notion, then you understand to premise. All this that there's going to be conflict there, because from the kid's point of view, why not have it go on forever, right? And from the parents' point of view, it's like, okay, this one's going to live down. Probably live on. It's made it past the first couple of years. It's going to probably make it. To 12 and be sexually mature. So genetically, the number um, the daughter and son or son share with their parent is 0.5. Right? That's that's the amount of genetic material the two share. why there's phones in the mm-hmm. classrooms? Do people have to make a lot of calls? A lot of professors make them calls? Dwayne does it a lot. Dwayne does? Yeah. Who's he called? Like the physical people. What's, you, what, what's there's he want from them? He's in one of the classrooms. It's really loud. It gets really cold in there. So he calls them until to turn off. <laughs> That's just funny. I didn't know anybody ever used these. <laughs> to call like, the technical people if you're having issues with the screen. No, you stuff. swear the the screen until it works. That's how you <laughs> Or you say, does anybody here know how to do this? Right. Okay, so there is a use for the phones. I just thought they were in case, you know, someone had to make a quick call. <laughs> just a second, I got to see. Not everyone needs to be able to pick up hamburger phones on the way home. Alright. So that's, the, from the kid's perspective... But the mother would actually be better served by having another kid at some point. Okay, so you got to look, look at all these factors. So the the conflict continues until the parental cost is two times the benefit to the offspring and I'll show you why in a second. Then it's actually best interest of the parent and the kid to have another kid show up. Why is it two times? Because to the kid, it's going to be related to its brother or sister, 0.5, right? Okay? Well, two times 0.5 is like one of I'm related to myself, 1.0. I know it's kind of a hard thing to think of, but I, really, I share all my genes with myself. If suddenly the amount, the value, to what the, the cost to the parents, like two times 0.5, oh, it's one. Wait a second. Now we're both served by you having more children. Now this makes sense. So now I'm not going to complain about the like there's not a to be conflict anymore. So we can view this as the continuation investment or the amount. Now here's the picture. This shows you. We have, the, this is comparing to different species, of course. But we have two times in one time, okay? And this is where the conflict is going to be. On this we got... Uh, the genetic ratio of parent to offspring, one or two or whatever, okay, and the age of the offspring. The longer the development takes, the longer you have conflict. Human development takes for freaking ever. There, I, I can't. Well, at least among primates, especially if you say primates, among primates, nothing takes longer to reach sexual maturity than a human. Not even close. Even our closest. Non-living relatives. Homo Neanderthal ancestors, the Neanderthals. They didn't take as long to get to sexual maturity. They got there around seven or eight. They went to puberty at seven or eight years old, Neanderthals. Wow. Whereas us it takes till you're twelve. Ish, right? 12, 13. Okay. So think of how long co- the conflict is with a parent. It's going to be much longer. Does this make sense? Oh, yeah. That, Why is it two times the conflict? Two times because I share one. Okay, from my perspective, and I'm talking to mom, Okay. I'm thinking about my mother, right? So she gets—I I don't care what she gets out of this, actually. Cold, hard, evolutionary really thinking. I care what I get out of it. If she gives me stuff, that helps me, and I share 100% of my genes with me. If there's another kid comes along, I get something. If the other kid, when your, when your uncle Dan shows up, when, 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 when my brother was born, I get something out of him, living, because I share half my genes with him, right? Except that that could go to me. Screw him. It could go to me. When it gets to the point where it's two times the difference, right? Now it's like, well, if that's costing her twice as much, well, two times 0.5 is one. So now it's like, you know what? It actually makes sense because it's costing her. It now makes more sense for her to have another kid because now that's all bonus for me. That's all gravy. Make sense? Absolutely. Okay, okay. So, the cost to the parent, the cost to my mother, we'll think of my, bring the father in, but it gets a little bit more confusing. There's a cost to my mom. And the cost is, when they think of it, behaviorally, physiologically, the cost of my mom, but behavior you think of physiologically, there's a big cost there if you're a woman because you're breastfeeding. Big physiological cost. You're actually taking some of the nutrients that are going in your body and you're making it into food for somebody else. So there's a cost there. I share half my genes with my mom and all my genes with me. When the cost to her is now twice the benefit to me. That means it's costing her two times 0.5, which is one, that's the same as me, as the benefit to me. I'm getting something out of it, but it's costing her more than it's benefiting my genes. Does that make sense? So what you do now is at that point, it's like, well, let's have another kid. And we, we agree on that because it's like, oh, good. I don't, I don't need your damn parental investment anymore. I, I'm I'm being strong like bull. Have another kid, I share half my genes with that one. Everybody's happy, right? And if, if sexual maturity is quick, or if any maturity, didn't get, well, sexual usually is a pretty good because we know where it happens. But uh, growth, you know, just maturity level in, in general—the quicker it is, the less paradox offspring conflict is going to be, right? But if it takes a long time, it pulls that curve out, and we end up with a great big. Place where we have a parent-offspring conflict. Yeah, again. So, I'm assuming it gets complicated when you add a third child. Or yeah, and, and again, you've got then the calculation there is it gets complicated because it's from my perspective that I have to look at Dan's perspective, mm-hmm. my brother, and then I have to look at potential Stephanie, my sister's perspective, and then I have to look at Mom's perspective too. So, my interests and my brother's interests may be different, but my brother, me, and mom, when we all agree, now I can't, I don't have a whole lot to do there, but I may get in the way of my brother getting older somehow. How would I do that? I'd get to steal resources from him, slow his growth rate down. So, it could get very confusing, yeah. It could get very confusing. But... If you just think of this in terms of parent offspring, just one-to-one, um, the longer the maturity uh, rate, the more conflict you're going to have. And this classic parent offspring conflict here we can pick up is weaning. It's weaning, Right? This is when the mom says, you're not, you're not breastfeeding anymore, and the kid says, yes, I am. <laughs> right? And some kids, it's no big deal. And of course, we know that in, 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 in babies humans, a lot of, not everybody breastfeeds, but it's even just taking the bottle away and saying, no, now you're going to drink from a freaking sippy cup and eat apple. Well, by then, also, you know, crushed up vegetables and such. Chili. That's a conflict. And some kids, it's easier than nose. It gets a lot easier too if they're in a daycare situation where they're seeing other kids right now with sippy cups. because then they're like i don't need that bottle I, yeah yeah i that. think that's quite true i mean you know um kids learn a great deal as i said at the beginning while it may not take a village and all that sort of those principal platitudes, it is the case in fact the kids are influenced a great deal by their peer group a great deal right it's cool that you can even see it at such a young age when they are still doing parallel plays Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! For sure, for sure, they're influenced by their, by their, career. I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Now, this is kind of brings in when you brought up Matt. Yeah, your sibling rival when you share half your genes with your brother, but one with yourself. So, what this says is, if there's a benefit to my brother, it better be twice as good as what it would give me. Then I think it's fine, right? Now, what this should tell us, though, then, is that monozygotic twins should be nicer to each other than dizygotic twins. Because your monozygotic twin, you're as, or as they say, you know, identical twin, that's a genetic copy of you. You should be a lot nicer do a genetic copy of each what like they say, fraternal twin or dizygotic. Because, you know, dizygotic twins, it's just that two eggs got fertilized. Right? That's all that is. Monozygotic twins is it split up and made two babies. So it's genetically identical. Um, unfortunately, they aren't that clear here. Now, this may be because there's a couple possible. There's a couple reasons why this may be that it's not that clear. If there is a mechanism here, it's probably that. Well, there's a couple possibilities. It could be that if you're exactly the same age, you just recognize each other as being. Uh, Bundles have twins, the more likely one is that twin, uh, twins and triplets, multiple births, are so rare that we don't have a mechanism for, for recognizing exact copies of ourselves. So they aren't too clear here, which is kind of a shame, because it would be nice. nice when you're a kid, being nice to sharing with each other, right? And in fact, this is something we usually teach our kids, very young, we try to teach them to share. And it's especially good biologically to be nice to relatives, to share things with relatives. It makes more sense. Right? I'm not saying that it makes more moral sense, I'm saying it makes more sort of biological sense. But it's also sensible To to help strangers in the right conditions. The right conditions will be things like Will you see the stranger again? Because then you've got reciprocal altruism. Is the cost to you really, 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 really really small, but the benefits (coughs) are combined? Cost of sharing toys with another kid or sharing like a, you know, play, basically, yes, and just playing with another kid. The costs are minimal. There's a potential cost there. The kid could be some kind of psycho kid. But the costs typically are very small. The benefits, though, the potential benefits are small too, but they're potentially huge. You might end up with somebody uh, who ends up being a very close friend of yours. Right? So it's good for you and it's good for your kids that your kids learn to share. Why is it good for you? Because if they're sharing with relatives, relatives also share your genes. Right? So it makes sense for you to teach your kids to be nice to other kids, especially if they're they're cousins, let's say. And we do this, of course. Uh, All cultures teach kids to share. So that was nice. Sharing is nice. Baby killing isn't nice. That's the only segue I had there. We're going to move over to infanticide now. Okay. This is depressing, and it's also disturbingly common. It's disturbingly common. Um, it typically happens if the infant isn't viable or the mother is very young and has very few resources. Okay? But it does happen. And it happens, and I know you're going to say, well, China, one, po- one child policy, which we can talk about in a second time. Um I'm talking about Here. I'm talking about North America, I'm talking about Western Europe. I'm talking about not not countries that tell you how many children you can have, which they kind of have to over there, because they've got 1.75 billion people in an area smaller than Canada, they kind of have to do something. So, one-child policy makes some sense. Point is, I'm talking about a place like Canada, where we have lots of room. And what with global warming, there'll be even more places we can live. There'll be 24 million people living in Edmonton. Nothing? No? Just too depressing, throw in fantasize and really bad warming? Yeah. (laughs) Boy, the next 50 years are going to be great. I'll be dead. You guys will be alive. Post-apocalyptic. Great. That's what all these video games are training you guys for. Remember that. (laughs) Play more games, man. (laughs) Back to the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) So, we can understand it biologically when a a young mother abandons a kid. You don't hear, and this is going to be depressing, but you do, well, first of all, you do hear about mothers abandoning kids in dumpsters, things like that. You you do. It happens. It's horrible, but it happens. It's never, and she was a 35-year-old lawyer. Is it? Right? It's, uh, it tends to be young women in a great deal of distress, and they tend to be uneducated and poor. They have no resources. It's horrible. I'm not saying it makes it right, though, right? Naturalistic fallacy. I can still say that's morally repugnant. And say, I understand why you did it. Not that I, that means I think it's Okay. Those are different things, yes. Especially now when there's so many options of adoption, yeah. and it's like there are alternatives. Oh yeah, people don't know that, though. Again, yeah. you yes, who, no, you when your resources are little, I'm not talking just about money in your pocket, I'm talking about yeah. these resources too. Perhaps you've got some sort of severe mental illness, they're not thinking properly. It can be that, it could just be that they don't know anything. You know? It literally can be that. They just don't have the knowledge. You know, you drop out of school, you're 14. I mean, it's. You don't get to have health class then, where they teach you about things like this. Okay. So, it's. This This does happen. And the, the sad thing is, as Sophie said, first of all, that there are always alternatives. Um, but also,. Um, I'm not talking about something like China or India but we're talking about um, sex selection stuff like that that's different that's different Where people want to only have a couple, one or two kids or there's one kid in China they okay. say uh, but then they uh, only want males right there's some interesting data there by the way I'm going to talk about No, I don't think I am so in now. Um, the poorer you are, this is in the West, we can assume it's true also in other places, but it's it's true at least North America. The poorer you are, the more likely you're have a girl. What? Why is that? Um, girls can marry up. Right? So in our culture, they might make more money than women. Men tend to do more earning work than women. Right? Richer people have more boys. Now, it's such a small difference. But it's true. Okay? Now, again, it's a very small, subtle difference. It's not like you can say, well, they're rich, they have children. Right? And you can't just pick one person and say, oh, I see. You must have hidden wealth because you had two boys. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. Well. I'm talking about average and the sex ratio, by the way, is 50-50, pretty much, at sexual maturity. Right. But boys can carry on the family wealth, in other words, can then the genes. Girls can marry up and carry the genes on. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Now, parents have conflicts, too. I don't know if you knew this, sometimes your mom and dad fight. Um, yes. It happens. It's one of those things. Now, one of the things they might fight about is certainty of paternity, because males really never know, right? The female always knows, right? How could she not? Unless you've got some kind of tinfoil hat thing going on, some kind of conspiracy, and she thinks that <laughs> the aliens implanted the embryo. At that point, she's one of those, what they call, low-information voters, So, yeah, I don't think we have to worry too much about that. As women don't, men never really know. The interesting thing here is that uh, parents of the father, when they see a baby, this is beautiful stuff. Half the time they say it looks like the mom, half the time they say it looks like a dad, first time they see it. Parents of the mother, when they see a baby, uh, 80% of the time they say it looks like the father. What they're doing, presumably, without their knowledge, by the way, is convincing the father it's his kid, because they know it's their grand, it's their that's their grandchild, because it came out of their kid. So they know it's theirs. Like it's got two point two five. Yes. Yeah, so, if they don't like the spouse and they're like, "Oh, it looks just like you, honey." To the girl, it's like, "Yeah, but that's probably putting the kid in danger." That's putting the kid in danger because if it's not, if the guy gets convinced it's not his, he's gonna kill it. Again, I don't think people are thinking that way, but that's the sort of behind-the-scenes behind the, behind the scenes kind of stuff, right? Um, we know that uh, we can look at stepchildren compared to uh, biological children. And this is an interesting comparison because, in fact, we have a lot of what today, what do we call today, blended families, what we used to call brainy bunches. <laughs> we didn't used to call it that. It was a TV show. Um... So blended families, right, where you got, like, mom has her kids from previous marriage, dad has his kids from previous marriage. Now, and a lot of times, these are, you know, people have, and there's probably people in this room that are like that, and it's perfectly happy and great and everything's cool. Everything's cool. But when we take a look at, on average, the data here, there is more abuse towards adopted children than biological children. Most adopted children, by the way, are not adopted as little babies. Most kids are adopted because of of, you get the blended family situation and you got a couple of kids and the father and the mother adopt each other's kids. That's that's really not uncommon. That's the most common kind of adoption we have. Right? The most common kind is not you adopt a baby. Not that's bad or anything. That it's just not the most common way. The most common thing is that. uh, Followed I think the second most common type of adoption is uh, parents get in some sort of either an accident or they're incapacitated and grandparents or uncles and aunts adopt the kids. So ba- adopting little baby, that's third. That's third. All right. So then we can look at the depressing topic is, there, is you know the, the treatment of, of, of stepchildren versus biological children and it's worse. Now again, don't don't think if you're in that situation, don't now start analyzing this. That's why my damn father never gave me that for Christmas four years ago. No, please don't. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Most people are pretty cool. We should actually be able to predict the most common grounds for divorce, shouldn't we? It should have something to do. Uh, with uh, infidelity, and it should have something to do with infertility, shouldn't it? I mean, it should, because, what, what, are, what are marriages? What are marriages for? For making children. Yes, I know that that's not all that they're about. But, but, biologically, what are pairings for? That's what I mean. That's the function. And I know everybody doesn't get married, and, okay, 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 and I know everybody doesn't have kids, And I'm not trying to say that those people are wrong. I'm really going to stop doing this soon. Second last lecture I'm giving it. I'm still doing this. Because I know someone's going to take it the wrong way. Okay, so divorce. We should get infidelity and infertility. Uh, Those, in fact, are the two most common reasons for divorce. No kids or having kids with somebody else. Or at least doing what makes babies. This is cross cultural, by the way. Um, in this case, in fact, with these things—the best case scenario is to leave. You know why? Well, for infertility, I think very recently we didn't know whose fault it was, and I say fault—I mean, like it's either the father can't or the mother can't. It's blaming anyone I don't order to play the blame game, man. But. And infidelity, screwing around on each other, is probably the best case scenario if, they, if, they, if you both split. Okay. okay, let's talk a bit about kids and development. So there's attachment, and we know about attachment theory and all that stuff, the importance of, of attachment in kids, uh, and how separation anxiety peaks right around 13 months. Typically, and in fact, if your kid doesn't show separation anxiety, that's actually weird. There's something going on. It isn't exactly 13 months. This, is in fact, one of the way one of the things that held me back from thinking uh, that my son had autism was because he he showed this completely normally. We tried putting him in daycare at around 13 months old, and he just couldn't deal with it. He couldn't deal with I remember Isabel played with daycare and then sat at daycare room, which really ceases to be daycare. It just becomes a room where you pay to sit with your kid, which is tax deductible, though. So, but he had normal separation anxiety in like 13, 14 months. Typically, if your kid doesn't show that at that age, you got to have the kid looked at. That's, in fact, right where they ought to have separation anxiety. What do you mean by that? Well... It would make sense to have it then because that's right around the time that mom and dad, that, thats you still have the parent offspring conflict. That's right where it makes sense for the mother to have another kid and for the kid it's like, no, I still need milk, man. So I'm going to manipulate you into staying here. Babies are incredible manipulators. And women, uh, and to an extent men, are Totally tuned into what baby cries sound like. We are hooked up that way, and and every animal's like that. The female is tuned into what the sound of a a young baby crying, Uh, a little puppy, a kid, right, depending on the species, obviously. So it makes sense from the kid's perspective to get attached to the mom. It makes sense from the kid's perspective to be worried that the mom wants to go have another baby and stop it. This is, it's, it's, it's a tactic for. for, for uh, we can view separation anxiety as a tactic to stop mom from going and mating and keep mom here and making milk for me. They are manipulative. Oh, of course they are. It's funny when they're having temper tantrums, too, because my daughter will sit there on the ground. She'll be kicking and screaming and stuff, and she'll watch. She'll, like, you'll see her eye peek to see if you're looking. Oh, and yeah. If you're looking, she'll keep going. And if yeah. You're watching, she'll
1: be like, eh. Yeah, they'll, that, they like...
0: <laughs> that's where it comes, like, just on you know, them. just, you know, okay, do your thing. Let me on your desk yeah. for a sec. No, it's funny because, in fact, and, of course, on some level, they don't even know they're manipulating. You know? <laughs> like... The thirteen-month old doesn't know. The thirteen-month-old really is concerned that mom's gone and never coming back. Yeah. And most moms aren't never coming back. They're gonna come pick you up at five o'clock when day when the day's done and they pick you up from daycare. But that is still manipulation because most moms aren't just gonna leave the kid there forever. Right? It happens, but it's pretty it's pretty pretty rare. Um baby cries are incredibly manipulative, baby faces are manipulative. Right, because having big, we are tuned in to having big eyes, um, small chins, smooth features. We're tuned in. we especially males, men are, and this is also true of other animals. Are programs aren't quite the right word, but it's like that to protect babies, and then women take advantage of that by looking like that. Women look more childlike demanded. Their eyes are bigger with respect to the rest of their face. I'm not saying women are children. (laughs) But they look more uh, immature. Is that that the right word I'm looking for? You know what I mean though, right? We go to great lengths with mascara to make your eyes eyes even look bigger. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And women have uh, softer features, things like that. Right? Not as pronounced chins. They look more like babies. And then men... It's, again, women don't know they're manipulative. And if, even if you did know that, you couldn't go, well, I'll just suck my chin in the bed or something. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing you can do about it. I love this question. Why are your kids kids? Why do we have... Why are children children? It's really a neat question, right? Because a lot of species, you think about it, a horse comes out and walks. Hell, a dog, even though puppies are very cute and all, they can, for example, walk. Human babies are just ridiculously... Stupid and useless. They can't do anything. They can't, they just, they're just lying there. They're crapping themselves. They're just, they just, they're, they, they can't talk. They don't know anything. Well, the thing is, in our, this long um, development process we had is a huge evolutionary advantage to humans. And that huge advantage is we can teach people things. Kids have a lot to learn. We had this complicated communication system called language. You couldn't be born with this. And we know that also, we look at, say, birds. It takes time for birds to learn their own song as well. So we've got both cognitive and social development to take care of. So social development, recognizing how to behave, teaching your kids how to behave, teaching your kids to share, all these other things we're talking about. Plus the cognitive development, actually learning the way the world works. So, in, in a lot of respects, kids are kids because we have to have a whole long time to, to teach them stuff. And like I said, the interesting thing is that Neanderthal kids went until about seven, which is still pretty damn long to reach sexual maturity. But, you know, it's almost twice as long as us. And that's our closest really relatives. It's not like uh, when most, Europe, most people of any European descent, which is the majority of us in the room, have some Neanderthal DNA in So so well, you know there, there certainly was some crossbreeding there, right? So I get this lump in my forehead right here. <clears throat> it's Neanderthal, extra brain cells in the store, right there. <laughs> so this all the social and cognitive development the kids have to do, right? That other species don't have to do. We really look, think about a rat. Funny, you know, there's a mammal. 28 days, sexual maturity. Right. 28 days, a human baby has finally learned to cry with tears. Right. For the first month or so, they cry without tears. And you don't notice that until someone points it out to you. And then the first day they actually have tears, you go, oh, now you're really screwing with me because now you look sad. I know you just want to eat, but now you're sad, and now I feel guilty and horrible. You manipulate a little bastard, <laughs> right. Oh, no, you—that you think you you, don't, you think that for a second, and then you think, "Well, I'm sorry, it's okay." okay. <laughs> See, you know, I just always say to my kids, "Stop being such a baby when they were babies," um, but it's good for kids the way they are. Um, kids are. <clears throat> In the words of all Simpson, kids are stupid. Right? They get so proud of the stupidest thing, of things that really don't aren't that big a deal. Right? A kid will take a, a pen and do this and say, look, I wrote my name. You're like, no, you did. yeah, that's great. Way to go. And you think it's funny and you take a picture, and you put it on Facebook, and everybody likes it. But really, you know that's not an accomplishment. That's a scribble. It's a lot like my signature, actually, but... Or, or, or you know, we even encourage them. We encourage this. Kid poops in a potty, you get all excited. You get applauded. You might, you, might, you might say, well, you get a bowl of pretzels? That's what I got. I, that. I was, was bribed to the snack foods, salty snack foods. I like the salty snack foods. Yes. And I think they tried him and parties and all that. It's like no, uh, Dave wants pretzels. have like pretzels. <laughs> and the kids are yeah. gen- genuinely proud of it too. This is the thing. It's like they look at you like, like I wrote my name. <laughs> what do you think of that? It's pretty awesome, isn't it? I can write. You're looking at me. You can't really write, but this is great. Way to go! And you're sort of part of this. It's kind of like the Santa Claus thing, right? Like you don't you don't you just lie to your kids. So. Um, and they put their pants on their head. I you mean, wait a oh, minute, that dress, wait so, you're awesome, and they're proud of it, and they're walking around going, yeah, I put my pants in my head, what do you think of that? It's a new thing you're doing. <laughs> I, it's a new, uh, you see my viral video, pants on the head. <laughs> so, what kids are doing, like I said, they're, they're proud of this, these, these stupid little accomplishments they have, and they really aren't that many deal. Yeah, they'd be a big deal if you were a chip, but you're a human. It's no this isn't you didn't exactly just cure cancer, you scribbled on the wall. But no one says that to their kids, because that would be weird mean. You, you don't even really think it. You're part of this really weird deception <laughs> that kids are doing. Kids are deceiving themselves into thinking that they've accomplished anything. Well, if you look at the context of where they are in their development, that's pretty big. Oh no, it's great! But it really is the smallest little thing, is knowing how to put a sock on and doing it wrong. Right? It's still big because they learned how you have to open it up and put them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how hard is that, really? I don't know. We're humans here. We went to the, we've sent people to the moon. You know? Like I said, they're not exactly <laughs> curing cancer. But the, the neat thing is that it's good that they do this because it allows them to learn the really complicated parts of our culture, which most of them is pretty complicated. And all these complicated, cognitive things that eventually maybe became healthier cancer. Because, I mean, we laugh at it when they, when they do these things. We, we tell them they're great and way to go and all this stuff. We also, like, this really great. It's, so it's like when they try to, you know, the thing. Uh, they say that they've cooked you know, I've made, I've, I made you breakfast the first time your kid makes, makes you something to eat and you go, I'm supposed to eat this, right? What is it? It's flour and water and don't go into the kitchen yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that, that's never a good sign. That's never a good sign. So you might say we have kind of a, you know, you've heard of the idea of a biological clock. We have a sort of social clock. This is the idea of when we leave home, when we have kids, when we get married, all these things. Um, this is another place where I think we're going to have some parent-offspring conflict, right? The, first of all, you look at the data, and typically kids are pushing parents out. It's not that kids... Because it's a good deal for someone in their 20s. <clears throat> Most parents aren't going to charge them rent. Most parents aren't going to make them go buy food. It's just like, that's what I do. No big deal. So most parents are actually, it turns out, are pushing their kids out of the house. state. and again, it's a conflict kind of thing because it makes more sense for the parents to get the kid out there and having the kids. When am I going to hear about some grandchildren? That wasn't me talking to you. That was just the character I was doing, by the way. Um, this makes a lot of sense uh, that the parents have to get rid of the kids. Rather than the kids leaving voluntarily because it's a good deal to, to say, <clears throat> the most grief we have for kids that are lost—that—and that, that, this is depressing, data again—is kids around the age of eleven or twelve. Are people happy when they lose five-year-olds? No, of course not. Are they happy when they're twenty-year-old kids dead? No, of course not. But people are most devastated when it's an eleven or twelve-year-old kid that you know, dies of a disease or or, or an accident or something. Why? Well, that's right when you hit sexual maturity, except that it doesn't make... The beautiful thing is here, it doesn't even make sense anymore. We should be the most grief-stricken, as far as our genes go, with about an 18... Well, more like about a 23-year-old kid dying. Because that's around between 23, 25, 27, you know, mid, mid to late 20. That's when we start to have kids. Right? We don't have kids at 12 and 11 anymore. I know people do, but it's pretty, pretty rare. So this fits with the EEA. It doesn't fit with today, but remember, Stone Age minds, civilized uh, world. Right? Some conclusions here on this stuff. Um, I think our ideas of families and development have to be revamped a bit. And I think this, now, I'm just going to say this, and I don't know a lot about developmental psychology, so I'll that at the beginning, but I don't think evolutionary stuff has really touched development yet. Uh, developmental psychology. Is that right for those of you who are taking development? Yeah, like, it's not like that kind of stuff comes up a lot. Where it does in other classes I don't think, in other parts of psychology. about development can be understood with a little bit of perspective and conflict can be understood with some perspective and perhaps this can help some people. So I think if we think about I think if we we, I'm not saying when I say accept I don't mean think it's okay. But if we accept that there's going to be more violence and abuse towards a kid who's a stepchild than a kid who's a natural born kid. If we understand that that, that on average that should happen, maybe we can we can prevent it. Maybe we can, when there, we do have these blended families, if people knew in advance that they're not going to understand, know, things work differently with, with the mom than it did with the dad, dad's family, and they should learn that in advance, we could actually do some good here. We could actually do some good here. So we could maybe help some people. Right. Um, I think the same thing can be said about, to a lesser extent, with parent-offspring conflict uh, and to a lesser extent with, with sibling rivalry, that we can understand some of these, uh, these evolutionary things with our Stone, we have the stone Age minds, but the beautiful thing is we also have the cognitive capacity to understand where these things come from and, and inoculate people against them. Uh, it would be a horrible thing, I think, for a lot of people to admit, except the data show it over and over again say about... Uh, Adopted kids. Okay? Finally, the neat thing, I think one of the the most important things, and the one place ever in my life I will give Sigmund Freud about this much credit, is children are not little adults. So unlike a lot of other species, where the young are basically just miniature versions of the old, once rat pups have fur, they just look and act like regular rats. Humans aren't, we we nowadays don't act like adults until we're in our late teens, early 20s right? It takes that long to learn the complicated stuff about our culture. So keeping that kind of thing in mind, um, it's important that kids, we think of kids as adults partially because we help encourage them to keep working on stuff even when that really isn't writing their name. But we also uh, might end up with, you know, one of those kids will be cancer. happy now. are going to happy now. Somebody's going to be really you all feel the